This is the Literary License Podcast, Classic Novel Episode. Dealing with classics you must read before you die, and finding new life in between the dusty covers. Exploring page to screen and everything in between with your co-hosts, Jesse Woods, Ricky Ray, Leandro Getzi, and Keith Chalgo, who ensure to bring the fun to an old stand. Welcome to Literary License Podcast, and today we're discussing our classic novels episode, which is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, based on the Victor Hugo classic and the 1939 black and white film Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara. And Happy New Year's to all our followers, and welcome to 2021. Should be an interesting year for all. So anyway, before we get started, let's find out who's with us. We have special guest, Shanta Pariska, who's with us. Hello, Shanta. Hi. Hi, Shanta. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. And we also have Vicky Ray's with us. Hi, everybody. And Leandro Gazi and Jesse Fultz have gone incognito so obviously they've probably gone into the bowels of 2020 never to be seen in 2021. Yeah, Jesse's probably hung over again. <laughs> <laughs> probably sanctuary. sanctuary in the yeah. Precisely. Well, I mean, let's say Jesse's young so we'll, we'll, he can get away with getting drunk and getting hung over. That's, that's what it means to be young. So yes, get on you, Jesse. So before we get started, we'd like to sit there and find out what each of us been up to. And let's start with Shanta. What have you been up to? Um, so much stuff, but primarily I am on, well, I'm half of the horror host show Hex and Arcane. I play Celeste Parker. Um, so horror hosting is showing mostly classic, terrible, black and white public domain movies. Which are totally have brilliant. Of- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have the show some independent ones and we have a lot of fun hosting it. So I do that with my co-host and show sister Morgan Parker. And if you are interested, you can find us on basically every social media. Just look up Hex and Arcane. We're on Amazon Prime as well. I'm just wondering if we can get you to tell us one of your jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that to you. The bell from hell one taps everything. The bell from hell. But yeah, that I just finished watching that. And I, you even got her laughing this time. That was really funny. I wasn't expecting that either. That was good. <laughs> but y'all have to watch it. So too, they're really great. Everybody's got to watch them. And I suggested all our listeners, um, if you want more information on Shanta, it will be in our show notes and it'll also be in our newsletter. So make sure you sign up for that or look on look at the bottom of what, where you're listening to and all the information, how to get into um, Shanta's program will be there. All you need to do is click the links and make sure you share and like. And what about Thank yourself, you. Vix? You're welcome. And what about yourself, Vix? What have you been up to since... Oh God, it's been two weeks since we've oh done a God, show. I got nap, not not a whole lot. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, Asher's race schedule and what we're going to do about that this year, and uh, trying to catch up. I, I've been watching a lot of movies lately, just just tons. <laughs> I don't know what got into me. The last four days, I've been binging everything, but I just started watching Cobra Kai, the third season again. I got all squee about that. Um, my husband was going, what are you watching? I go, haven't you ever seen the karate kid? And he goes, Oh, I don't think so. I go, what? 
I go, you <laughs> not watch the Karate Kid? I go, because he didn't understand what, what I was watching or why I was loving this, because it was nice to see how these characters evolved. And they're like, you know, adults with children of their own and all kinds of new, you know, triangles of, of problems. And it, it's just a great series. I love it. I like to see how they're, they kind of hate each other still, but they don't really anymore. And they're kind of, you know, joining forces against evil. And it was nice to see what actually happened to him, why he's such a jerk. You know, mm. they, they're showing his, his, you know, backstory. But other than yeah, that, I yeah, I mean, it was, it was really interesting. I think I got up to like episode three because I'm trying not to watch it all at once because I'm really bad that way, especially, you know, when everybody's quarantined. So you don't have a whole lot going on. And it's cold out and it's been miserable rainy here in Texas. But other than doing our usual thing, not a whole lot, just getting through the holidays. And, you know, my daughter got me some really cool presents. You know, she knows what I like. She got me that spinning moon thing, you know, the magnetic thing. Oh, yeah. And it's so cool. I just sit there and it's like a tripping toy. I can watch it for hours. (laughs) Just, I don't know. It's just really cool. But no, just, just chilling and, you know. Trying to see what the new year is going to bring and if we're going to stick our toe in the water ever so slightly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, myself, I mean, I've been off work since the 24th, so I haven't been injecting any. um, (laughs) Say it, say it. Any of the Pfizer, I know biotech that's going out at the moment. So yeah, that's been quite good not to have to inject three to 400 people a day. I mean, a week. That must get tedious. Yeah, it was actually. Um, so I'm actually off for three weeks. So I've actually um, basically the highlight of my day is I take a leisurely bath once a day and I get back into my pajamas and I haven't seen the outside world since the 24th. But so saying bad, that has given me a lot of time to actually do other stuff that I quite enjoy. I've been playing computer games. Netflix has been dropping a lot of stuff recently. Um, yeah. I haven't gotten to Sabrina yet, but that's on my list. Cobra Kai, I started watching, so I watched the first three episodes of that and really enjoying that. Mm-hmm. Um, watched a film called Spree, which is about... Oh, yeah, Spree. Media. How could we forget? Yesterday, Keith texts me and he says, you have to watch Spree. And it's like, okay, so I watched it. Yep, everybody's got to watch it. <laughs> it's different. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been quite weird because I saw Spree and then Netflix dropped The Circle last night. And so I watched that, which is basically a game show where they put everyone into a separate room and they're living in these separate rooms. They don't actually, they only speak through each other through social media. And there's some people who are catfishing um, as well. And it's quite an interesting exercise. Um, Isaac and I started watching it at about nine o'clock last night, Um, about six o'clock in the morning. We were still watching and glued to it. And this morning when I woke up, we watched the final three episodes. And it's quite interesting about how people present themselves on social media and what is real and what isn't real. Exactly. And and, um, and it was quite it's quite good actually. I, I had to say it was quite an interesting exercise and I really into it sort of thing. So it's kind of like that other di- program that they had about dating. You know, they all had them in a room and they're dating by the video and. And I guess it's, you know, because everyone's self-isolated in their own little rooms and there's no human contact, I guess that's very COVID-friendly TV series as well. But um, but yeah, that was really good. And then, of course, um, I finished off The Mandalorian. Um, yeah. Actually, I wasn't that. cheered by the end of that. I, I hate Star Wars. I am not a Star Wars fan whatsoever. I don't see it. I just look at Muppets and people with plastic heads on. And that's, all, that's how I see most science fiction, unfortunately, for myself. 
But the Mandalorian, I said that took Excellent. me by surprise. I was so into it, and I was so touched. And yeah, yeah, it was great. I, one of the best things I've seen um, for mm-hmm. the whole year. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yes, wait a whole year it. for it. And one thing I suggest that everyone should see it's available on Disney Plus because of the closing of the theaters and stuff like this, that so you can't go to the movie cinema for whatever reasons. Pixar decided to release their latest film called Soul with mm. voice by Jamie, um, Jamie Foxx. Watch it. It is one of them. Pixar's pulled it out again. I don't, I don't, I've never seen a Pixar film where they actually gone down a lane that's un, unenjoyable, but it was fantastic. Watch that. I was just like floored. So I'm telling Good. everyone to watch Soul, which is on Disney Plus from, from Pixar, their new Pixar film. It's a lot deeper than you think it's going to be, and it's quite interesting. It's about metaphysics. Kids will like, like Asher. I think the kids will like it. I think the adults will get more out of it because it's about the metaphysicalness of death. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Is it one of those flybys or no? Not for little kids. No, I think no. Look, I mean, thing I can you know, my hats are off to Disney and Pixar, right? They're able to sit there and get that fine line to make some of the kids and the family will enjoy, but the adults will always get something more out of it. And yeah, and they really pulled it out of the hat. So it's been like otherworldly as well. Otherworldly dealt with some quite strong issues as well, but it's still very <laughs> enjoyable and colorful and the artisticness of it and everything. I love like Pixar. So yeah. But other than that, um, I got one more week of holiday and then I'm back to work on the 11th. I'm so glad you're getting a break, especially with everything going on. I guess that will brings us to the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the novel, which the Hunchback of Notre Dame, of course, is written by Victor Hugo. And Victor Hugo seems like a name that you should recognize. Uh, Victor Hugo's um, book, Les Miserables, gave birth to one of the biggest musicals of the 80s and still running across the world. Sure is. But before that, he wrote the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is a French book um, with the subtitle Our Lady of Paris, originally titled Notre Dame de Paris, 1482. It was a French Gothic novel um, published in 1831. The novel has been described as a key text in French literature and has been adapted for film over a dozen times, as well as numerous television and stage adaptions, such as the 1923 silent film with Lon Chaney, which is available on Daily Motion. Give that a shot. A 1939 sound film with Charles Lawton and a 1996 Disney animated film. The novel sought to preserve values of French culture in a time period of great change. The French Revolution, which resulted in the destruction of many French Gothic cathedrals and churches, threatened to trivialize the vibrancy of the 15th century of France. The novel made Notre Dame de Paris a national icon and served as a catalyst into a renewed interest in the restoration of Gothic form. So before we go and talk about the book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, here's the synopsis of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the synopsis. During the 1482 Festival of Fools in Paris, Quasimodo, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, is elected the Pope of Fools for being the ugliest person in Paris. He is hoisted on a throne and paraded around Paris by the jeering mob, 
Pierre Gringard, a struggling poet and philosopher, tries unsuccessfully to get the crowd to watch his play instead of the parade. Archdeacon Claude Frollo appears and stops the parade and orders Quasimodo back to Notre Dame with him. Looking for something to eat, Gringoire admires the graceful beauty of La Esmeralda, a gypsy street dancer, and decides to follow her home. After rounding a corner, she is suddenly attacked by Quasimodo and Frollo. Gringoire rushes to help her but is knocked out by Quasimodo as Frollo runs away. The king's archers, led by Phoebus the Chantampur, arrives just in time and captures the hunchback. Later that night, a group of beggars and thieves are about to hang Grimgar when La Esmeralda comes forward and offers to save his life by marrying him for only four years. The next day, Quasimodo is put on trial and sentenced to two hours of torture in the Place de Grave. He suffers both the pain of being stressed and pulled apart, as well as being publicly humiliated by the crowd of people who hate him for his ugliness. He begs for water, but no one answers his pleas, until Le Esmeralda comes forth and brings him something to drink. Nearby, a recluse called Sister Budold screams at Le Esmeralda for being a gypsy child thief and blames her for her daughter's kidnapping 15 years earlier. A few months later, La Esmeralda is dancing in front of Notre Dame and Phoebus calls her over to him. She has fallen in love with him and blushes when he asks her to meet him later that night. Frollo watches him from the top of the Notre Dame and becomes insanely jealous of Phoebus. His obsessive lust for La Esmeralda has made him renounce God and study alchemy and black magic. In his secret cell at Notre Dame, he plans to trap La Esmeralda like a spider catching a fly with its web. Later that night, he follows Phoebus to his trice with La Esmeralda and stabs Phoebus repeatedly. He escapes and La Esmeralda is captured by the king's guards. After being tortured at her trial, La Esmeralda falsely confesses to killing Phoebus and being a witch. Since sentenced to hang in the Place de Grave, Frollo visits her in jail and declares his love. He begs her to love him and show him some pity, but she calls him a goblin monk and a murderer, refusing to have anything to do with him. Before execution, La Esmeralda is publicly humiliated in front of Notre Dame. Looking across the square, she suddenly sees Phoebus and calls out his name. He actively survives the murder attempt, but doesn't want anyone to know that he was injured. He turns away from La Esmeralda and enters the house of his bride-to-be. Just then, Quasimodo swings down on a rope from Notre Dame and carries her back to the cathedral, crying out, SANCTUARY! He had fallen in love with her when she brought him water and had been planning her escape all along. La Esmeralda is saved from execution just as long as she stays inside the cathedral. At first, he finds it hard to even look at Quasimodo, but they form an uneasy friendship. Even though he is deaf, he enjoys being around her when she sings. Meanwhile, a group of vagabonds resolves to save La Esmeralda after hearing that Parliament has ordered that she be removed from Notre Dame. But when Quasimodo sees them attack the cathedral, he thinks they have come to kill La Esmeralda, and he fends them off as best as he can, killing a large number of them in the process. Frollo has used the attack as a diversion to sneak La Esmeralda out of the cathedral. He offers her two choices. She can either say she loves him or be hanged. She demands to be executed and he leaves her with Sister Gudol. To their astonishment, they discover that they are mother and daughter. Gudol tries to protect La Esmeralda, but it is too late. Back at Notre Dame, Quasimodo goes to the top of the North Tower to find her gazing off into the distance. He sees the figure of La Esmeralda in a white dress hanging from the scaffold. He bellows out in despair and grabs Frollo by the neck. Hanging him up in the air, Quasimodo sighs with grief and then throws Frollo down to his death. 
looking at La Esmeralda hanging off in the distance, and Frollo's wrangled corpse down below. Quasimodo cries out, There is everything I ever loved. Quasimodo's never seen again. Years later, when a grave digger stumbles across La Esmeralda's remains, he finds the skeleton of a hunchback curled around her. And that is the end of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Welcome back to Literary Lessons Podcast. We're discussing The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the novel. So, Vicki, what are your thoughts on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Victor Hugo novel? Well, I, I, I won't deny out of all the books I've read, college or whatever, I struggled with this one a little bit. It was because it's, 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 it's a great book, but um, he's using history of the Middle Ages <clears throat> and the structure to express all the major themes that run out to the story. And he's made this, uh, the, the architecture and the placement of the church, the uh, moral center and stage for everything that is going to transpire basically through uh, his book. And I mean, but you have to get through it. It's, it's kind of hard. I don't know if any of you two will, Shanta or whatever, it's kind of hard to get through. It's different. It's different kind of, writing for another time and he's writing for another time and uh he was clearly you know a scholar of medieval christianity you know and he used all the backdrop i've been in notre dame once and you know and it, the, it, the, the architecture is fantastic i was heartbroken and heartsick when i saw it catch on fire and uh it was probably literally the center of france back then and I mean, and when you, get, you have to read the book, you have to get through this to see how he's setting up the story because he was also big on saving the architectural structures of, of Paris. Apparently, you know, there was kind of what I guess, you know, people modernized things, you know, and they're trying to bring buildings to modernity and they're trying to, uh, I guess they're defacing them or pulling them down and putting up what they consider uh new new structures and architecture but he was really you know showing his what's the word i want to use he's he had a uh like a quest to you know get get people interested apparently this did happen because he wrote this book but but basically there's a lot of moral a lot of the thematic morals that just run through this whole book and it and it's not what i expected i thought i'd read it back in the day and i i didn't and um, and it's not like the Disney version at all. It's a very dark book and it has adult themes in it for the most part, because, you know, you've got church and morality and, you know, this is a 16 year old girl. She was not like a 25, 26 year old woman and everybody falls in love with her. And you've got one priest who's having issues because he's, you know, infatuated with her. And there's like, it's like a triangle, these three men that kind of got a thing for was it Phoebus he was really kind of a shit though you know he's one of those what do you call mondo dismals he's just an awful man basically you know he uses women and throws them out like shoe leather you got the priest who's just a he didn't seem evil in the beginning actually did he because he actually loved his brother and he actually tried to help Quasimodo but, well, he adopted Quasimodo, didn't he? So Yeah, he did. But, you know, and he was trying to teach everybody and try to do right by them. But then he just loses it when he sees this beautiful gypsy girl, you know, and he becomes, you know, 
He's lust. Just, when lust takes lust, over the mind. Lust, I got big time lust. He takes up alchemy and, and, and you know, dark, dark magic kind of things, which is nothing wrong with all dark magic once in a while, but okay. But uh, he uh, kind of loses his soul over her. And, you know, and it, it just, it comes to that head in the book, you know, to a very sad ending, which I was not expecting. What about yourself, Shanta? What's your initial impressions of the book? This was a reread for me, but there were a ton of, there's so many themes that run through it. And I could really see when I was reading it, how much it was tailored to the audience at the time it was written. So some of this stuff will be missed on audiences now because it's just not relevant. So we have this sense of preserving the older stuff. At that point, maybe it wasn't old enough that they really cared about it. You know, despite its beauty, it's like this push to modernize things. Um, so I could see how like his goal in that really spoke to the audience at the time. And there were a lot of themes of like, you know, the ending of the middle ages and the sort of uh, superstition versus science. And I really enjoyed watching that play out and how it affected the people and how they were showing the different people that were, the different personalities that were merging on different sides of it and how the crowd was drawn into that. Um, so I really enjoyed that aspect. And then it also brought up some more modern themes to me that I think I wouldn't have seen from that perspective, you know, when I read it the first time. Uh, things like the way Frollo reacted to Esmeralda and the sort of you know, blaming her for his feelings and it's very relevant to modern times and how people are, you know, blaming someone else for how they react or how they feel about them and punishing them for their own feelings. It sort of, you know, harkens to the me too movement and all those things. So it had a lot of themes in it that were relevant and some that were not relevant now, but you could understand where the author was coming from. Some of it translates very well into our day and time. I mean, what I found personally was quite interesting is, is that as far as the, the main story is concerned, the main story is very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Unlike, let's say, what we read before, the, Monte, the Count of Monte Cristo kind of story kind of veers every which way. And then finding the, the meat of the story is kind of hard to maneuver through. Where I found with Hunchback is that it was pretty easy story to follow once you got the original story, but then you get the history lesson. Yeah. And the history is which is basically giving you the background history of Paris, um, Notre Dame, so on and so forth. But it's one of those weird things that when I read that part of this, I was like, okay, this is slowing it down, but I read it anyway. And it took me, I had to sit there and say that when I got to the media story, I kind of read through it very, very, read through it, not a problem when I got to these segments in the book, which I have to, to be fair, they tend to be a whole book within themselves. The book is separated by what, a 12 sort of thing within the, the, within the novel. And then what was kind of weird is I kind of like, okay, I'll read through this. And then when I finished the story, I really much enjoyed it. But then I reflected back on the history lessons that you're getting in this storyline. And another thing is, is uh, I actually looked at a, a map of Paris as well and see where Notre Dame is listed where, where it sits in within Paris and I noticed that basically with all the roads and rivers through it that Notre Dame is like the center of Paris and mm-hmm. all roads and all rivers lead to Notre Dame and then um, 
so therefore, when I was um, reading through the book, it also reminded me of um, the social works and the offsprings of the nation that were going on in Paris at that time. And, ha- that, and the, the reason why Victor Hugo did that, basically, is that basically is that no matter what walks of life you are, it's a bit like they, there's a saying that if you sit in Piccadilly Circus every single day of every single minute, you will see all, every single human being at least once in your life by just sitting in one place. And yeah. I guess that's what Victor Hugo is trying to say about Notre Dame and that whole architectural thing. I do say it get a bit, a bit more tighter with it because after a while it does wander around a bit. But it does. Like. It does a little bit. But as far as the themes are concerned, um, I have to sit there and say that there's so many different themes and stuff like this. I have to sit there and say that um, one of the main themes I also notice is that how everyone is so trapped up in themselves that they don't really think of anyone else. And the one person who tends to spend a lot of time thinking of other people is the one unfortunately that has the worst demise yeah. um, to happen to them. And I found that quite interesting. And I guess as far as looking from with modern eyes, I guess you could also look at immigration and how we look at the immigrants, how they come in, they're going to rob us, they're going to do this, they're going to steal from us, and they're they're, they're the abominant of evil, and that's how we look at people um, who are coming into a country that that we feel that they don't belong. And I thought that Hunchback really showed that. And it's quite weird, because I guess um, now that we're going into 2021, that maybe the human race might I've learned some lessons to learn that diversity and our differences is what's richer. Yeah. It's, you know, you can either go to a Mexican restaurant, an Italian restaurant or a Japanese restaurant, but let's be honest, the best kind of food that you can have is a fusion restaurant that fuses all these different cultures yes. together to get the best totally kind of meal out of it. And maybe that's how we I, look at it. I did find that slightly problematic though, in the portrayal in the novel, because Esmeralda, who was sort of the ambassador for her people, was not even Egyptian. Yeah. She was. So it took somebody who was not, you know, from that culture at all originally to be that ambassador to, you know, try to change that. And obviously they didn't know that at the time, but it kind of changed the message when you find out that she is not actually one of those people that they're trying, that she's trying to help. She's, you know, she was kidnapped. Yeah. And she was replaced by Quasimodo, wasn't she? When she was kidnapped. Yeah, and that's problematic too, because who would get rid of their child and kidnap? I don't know. I would never fight. I, I, as a mom, I, I feel you on that one. I mean, as a mom, I don't, I don't know how anybody could, I, I couldn't. It's just like, I love No, I don't care how ugly my kid is. I no, exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess people were starving, though, and whatnot. Let's face it. You know, it was a different time with a different mindset. And then again, if you had a child that was as disfigured as Quasimodo at this time period, um, would 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 people think that you gave birth to a demon? That true. Yeah. People were crazy. Yeah. Yeah, This right after the Spanish Inquisition, kind of at this time. Yeah. Well, it was seen as a sort of a curse. Like, you must have done something wrong to deserve this or yeah i mean it takes place in 1482 yeah yeah christopher columbus has yet to sail yeah (laughs) so you know well they were still burning witches then yeah Yeah. it was in the midst of all that and i guess another thing i guess that you know to carry on with what shanta was saying about um esmeralda i mean she looked like an exotic beauty is what they describe in the book right. so and the thing is i guess we find out that her mom's french 
you know, right. French mad woman walking the streets. Um, but I guess we never really know anything about her father. So she is he mixed race or is she just someone who's French who was born dark they call her Rom- Roma Romanesque Roma. So yeah. is she Italian descent? I'm assuming. Well, she'd be Romanian, isn't she? Gypsies. Okay, I didn't Romania. know where they were going with that. So I mean, well, I, I mean that's where gypsies originally. You right. Know, you think of the typical European gypsies. True. They're normally from Romania or Romania. I wonder what I wonder what sparked so much. I mean, I, I I know to this day people kind of even now you know they have a, a distrust or dislike for these people, and I've always found them fascinating. You know, um, I don't like, you know, you've got the, uh, they have reality show. I don't know if you know what, do you like reality shows? You know what I'm talking about? Was it the, the, uh, the Gypsy Brides? The, yeah, the Gypsy Brides. I mean, I couldn't stop watching that. <laughs> I, I just thought these people were fascinating. And I mean, and people still got a little bit of attitude. You can tell. Yeah, but I think that also comes from what the human race considers anything that's a bit different from their norm, whether it's religious cultural or anything like that they're scared of anything that's different um look at how people look at like hasidic jews for instance because they dress differently or amish people or you know going on that end of the spectrum sort of thing and even though that they're all praying to the same god because they prayed slightly different there is a fear you know amongst that culturally it's the same thing it's like you know romanian gypsies have their own way of looking at things and you know, it's it's different from what they have. I mean, nowadays we look at the gypsies and they hold like very old fashioned values. It's like they marry within their culture. They're, um, you know, they don't, you know, there's no dating. They're, they're normally, um, you know, marriages that are brought on by two families coming together, which is a very, very old fashioned yeah. way of seeing it. And when the, even when that was in vogue at the time, that, that this is how we would live our lives in the, in the past. This is, you know, because of their superstitions, which would set them apart. And even though their marriages practices matched everyone else's, you know, but it was their superstitions that keep them apart. Now, because their marriage practices are different, this is what's keeping them apart because their superstitions don't matter anymore. Because, I mean, the human race will always find a way to find something to... Ostracize. Ostracize yeah. a person. I mean, if we were all, if we all looked the same, if we all were, you know, had the same background, stuff like this, then they probably would hate you for the shape of your eyebrow or the, sh- or your eyelash didn't curl the right, in the right direction. I mean, the yeah, that happens. Things. That's some, re- that's some true story stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I'd have to say that with, um, as La, La Esmeralda, um, we don't really know a lot about her past as far as, and then when we do find her about her past, like Chantal was saying, we find out that she's actually French. Yeah. So for her to bridge that gap is kind of like, it probably would have been nicer if that soap opera, well, it did feel like kind of a soap opera um, story device bad. put in there to actually like, let's tie everything up. Let's make, you know, let Esmeralda and Quasimodo, you know, have a connection between them that happened at birth at some point, And then they seem kind of star-crossed, not like lovers, but definitely star-crossed, you know, because you have to, I mean, I, I thought, I, I watched actually, was it the Anthony Quinn version of the movie? That just didn't work for me at all, too. But I mean, you, you get this guy in your head and you think about it. You got to have humanity when it comes to that. I mean, really, because he was probably what they well, he was the, the king of fools, wasn't it? Was it the king of yeah. fools? Yeah. And, you know, and it was because he had the ugliest face. And, you know, for one day he was 
you know, accepted and it was great for him and he was happy. And then the next day, these people are, you know, stoning and throwing vegetables at him while he's tied to a pillory getting whipped. It's like but, people. But, are isn't just, that, but isn't that what the people do, though? I mean, that's yeah. let's say, let's take a let's take a rock singer, for instance, like we'll hail them as the most fantastic thing. Oh, they're the best artists ever. They come out with a bad album and we're throwing vegetables and stuff out. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're the worst thing that ever happened. How dare you? Well, he was never a person to them. He was always a spectacle. So whether he was a spectacle being, you know, celebrated or he was a spectacle being mocked, he was never humanized to them at all. Exactly. No. He was like, what do they turn their face? Because they're afraid that he would put some kind of, you know, hit him with a whammy or something. If they looked at him, you know, he was going to be. Yeah, pregnant women were not supposed to look at him because that would affect their child. Right. The horror of on his face. And the thing is, I mean, there's still, we still have that today, whether you're, you know, some people feel that way about down children or mentally retarded children. Oh God, I know. You know, that still goes on today. So You know what that made me think of a long time ago? What was that, uh, the disease uh, that was causing the babies with the the heads that they were different? They didn't have a long lifetime, but we got it here because of the the West Nile virus. Gosh, what is that disease called? But you saw the little babies and their their heads were smaller than their bodies and they were, you know, almond shaped eyes and everything. And I cannot Zika, Zika virus. And we were me and my girlfriend were waiting in, I don't know what country we we're in. We were waiting to come home. And there was a lady there, and it just it kind of melted your butter bad because she was holding a baby that was obviously had Zika virus. And she had also another beautiful child with her. But this baby she was holding was actually beautiful and it was smiling and mom loved it and it was probably one of the most touching things I've ever seen you know in my life and I mean just the way this mother looked at this child and how much she she loved him you know because and that's where you know when Shanta said how can a mother just give away their child like that because it doesn't you know it's I mean that right there is is like there's a there's something wrong with people that don't have any humanity and I mean well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that if you give up, there there are different reasons. I think that if you, something happens. Oh, yeah, you can't top, feed them sometimes. I get it. And back then. I also, be also, but I also have to sit there and say that if you, let's sit there and say that you have a down child today. And let's sit there and say that you don't have the financial means to support yourself. Then, you know, I think that you know, if you have a child with a disability or stuff like this and, and the choices that you give them up, I think that there's a lot of that runs into the gambit of those decisions that you would have to make. Because if you do have, you know, if you're living in today's structure and you do have a uh, mentally disadvantaged child or a child that's got a, a huge um, disability, you're going to have to have a quite a good income nowadays. None of it's free. It's not a free surface. Well, there are going to be medical issues that might arise. There are huge medical issues. You're, you know, you're always going to be in debt, sort of thing. Um, and if you're a young mother and you're facing life at the first, I mean, there, I think there's, you know, I think you do have to look at the different issues that do thing. I'm not, you know, I'm not supporting or not supporting, but I think that you kind of have to kind of look at the whole, the whole story, the whole situation, and everything like that. So yeah, so far to me, it's you know, sitting there saying that 
you know, if you are, if you do give your child up because they have a disability. Now, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are terribly vain and do it. Don't get me wrong. But I also, you know, sort of like, oh my God, the child's not beautiful enough to be with our, my beautiful, perfect looking family. It's going to look really good on my social, look really bad on my social media profile. But I do think that you also have to look at the bigger picture of some people that maybe the reason why they do this is because, you know, in this story itself, it'd be the stigmatism of having a child like Quasimodo, chances are your family probably be ostracized or hung, maybe. Your whole family could be hung as witches because you gave birth to this child, maybe. You know, so maybe you're doing it for your own safety. I know I know a mother's love is supposed to, you know, bypass anything in life sort of thing. And that's what we're grown up to be. But, you know, it, you know, in this time period, I mean, you know, for the 14, you know, 1485 Paris at that time giving giving birth to Quasimodo is probably not the best. I mean, I've watched documentaries in India, in modern day in India, where they've given, um, you know, where they've given birth to someone who wasn't perfect and they had like some weird, weird disabilities and the family is ostracized and made to live in a cave somewhere. And this is modern day. So it's happening now. So, so, well, that went down the dark road. (laughs) Well, that's us. (laughs) Well, it was a dark novel, though. I mean, it really, it it didn't really have many happy moments, did it? No, just the goat. Just the goat. Um, Yeah, I would have loved to have a goat like that. (laughs) I have to say that I found, um, I found that the the interest of the person who's good and light and who tries to see good in everyone and tries to see good in everything until she's faced with evil is La Esmeralda, but she's 16. She doesn't, she hasn't really faced real life yet, has she? She yeah. has the ideologies of a teenager. Yes. Yeah. She is a teenager. I mean, mm-hmm. think back to when we were kids, you know, what were you thinking about when you were 16? I don't even know if I can remember <laughs> or what I was, what my brain was doing back then. But I mean, she was probably idealistic. I mean, she like, she meets this, you know, what we call Greek as in God. Was it Phoebus? And he's just a typical guy who's just out for conquest and tail, you know, and she will do anything. She preaches her undying love to him and he doesn't turn out to be good for her. And, but the thing is she has, it doesn't seem like she has anybody's guidance either. She's like footloose, fancy free. She doesn't have a mother. She doesn't have any parents. So who's technically, you know, she's, she's just in this group of people that are estranged from the rest of society, you know? Right. I mean, I think that people are like older people would be able to see through Phoebus and be like, that guy's a dude. Yes. How many but, times have you told your girlfriend, he's no good. He's no good, you know. But she didn't have the experience to understand that. And they thought just because she was beautiful that she was probably promiscuous and she wasn't. You know, I mean, and that it's all about, you know. It's all about this book is all about looking at it's all about appearance, you know, right. it, it's either very ugly with, you know, with a beautiful soul or you're very, you know, beautiful with an ugly soul or an innocent soul. And I mean, but it was about appearance. You have the Gothic appearance. You got everybody's appearance. You got Phoebus, you know, who's named after a sun god for all practical reasons. And he's far from it. You know, he's kind of a wretch, a cad. But isn't, but isn't that what we have today? Is yeah. social media just about appearance? Yeah, it's all yeah, about... Totally. totally. I mean, I found interesting about Claude Frollo. 
um, which he's not your um, stereotypical villain, which no. I found him really interesting. It's quite weird because up until reading this book, I had this vision of Frollo. He's like this horrible person. Da, 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 you know, he's horrible to everyone. He's yeah. sexy, frustrated, so on and so forth. But what kind of, ch- you know, well, it's kind of weird reading the novel. You find out, no, Frollo's actually a lot different than what you expected him to be. You know, you have like the Disney version of Frollo's. Right. Like, basically, you know, I think the Disney version opens up with basically, you know, Frollo taking, you know, killing Quasimodo's parents and yeah, then trying to kill, and they're going to kill Quasimodo. But it's like the big the head priest comes out because now you need to take him into the church. And you're going to raise him for your sins, sort of thing. For, for a Disney movie, though, you really want to talk about how they adapt, adapted the story. Disney's like, whoosh, you know, right over the head because there were sexual undertones. You know how he's coming up and you know behind her and smelling her hair, and you know it's like. Yeah. You know, I wonder what little kids are at the. I mean, I took my kids to watch it because we always went watch this. Like, I, I watched it with a different set of eyes. You know, I have to, I watched all these. You know me, I'll watch everything involved with the subject. Yeah. And I thought it's like, whoa, what an adaptation. You know, <laughs> but it was it was kind of weird because it had all that. It had real adult the- thematics of the whole the, the whole cartoon. <laughs> But for Frollo, for me, is always like he started out evil and he ends up being evil. He just gets right. evil and evil as, this, as whatever adaptation. And so in my mind, this is the Frollo that works. But then reading this Frollo, he starts, he's got so much compassion and love for his brother after his parents died. Right. And then he has the same compassion and love for Quasimodo that um, that no one else. I mean, Quasimodo's laying in this wooden box right. at the foot. People are looking and go, what an ugly child. No one's feeding it. The child's crying. Frollo comes up, picks him up, takes him to church, goes, I'm going to love him and give him a life. I'm going to mm-hmm. spare, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give him, go show him the compassion that the world's not giving him. And this is what happens. Well, he got and frustrated course, because he wanted these two to be scholars. And. Well, I think it's a frustration. I think there's a lot of frustration. I mean, first of all, I mean, his brother is becoming out. He's an alcoholic and he's gambling all his money away. Right. And Quasimodo, the one person that um, he hopes or ends up becoming deaf, so he can't teach him anything. He can't even communicate with this person. So, and I think that's kind of the, you know, I think that's the downfall. And that's the ties in the Shanto where you kind of look at things around you. And instead of blaming yourself or, you know, you start blaming every the world around you for all the faults that are going on within your world or your world's not the perfect fit that you think it should be. But I, I thought that was quite Frollo, interesting that we did it. Excuse me? Oh, I was just going to say with Frollo, it kind of reminded me of, because he did have a lot of good qualities, it reminded me of like one of those Greek tragedy, like fatal flaw characteristic, where it was mm-hmm. like, that was his one thing that was his downfall. He couldn't get past that. Right. But it's yeah. kind of, he was in, he was a bit of an innocent though, um, Quasimodo. And then you have, well, I guess, Frollo must have done something good because Quasimodo isn't a total degenerate. You know, he does have a big heart. Yeah, and they I think they kind of showed that he was changed by Esmeralda's action, not maybe inherently a good person, but that action of her bringing him water changed something in him. Kindness, one act of kindness, and I say this a lot more lately, one act of kindness can change so much in a person's life you know, when, especially when there's so much of it not going around lately. Yeah. And, 
And I think that, you know, all joking aside and stuff, because me and Keith always have stupid jokes, but I mean, I think that if you get some, but there are people I've genuinely met in life that have never experienced true kindness and they are so grateful, you know, for when that just, you know, just to say something nice, you know, I mean, I, I also think that, you know, as far as Quasimodo is anyway, I mean, he's going to be dictated about how he's being treated by the outside world. For instance, I have a friend who suffers from dwarfism. Um, Her name's Marilyn. She's 70 years old now. And and to be honest, whenever I go to lunch with her or anything like that, or whenever we go out, people just stare. They do. All the time. And it's like, and it's like, she just, I mean, she's fine. She walks around. She's used to it her whole life. This is her whole life. But can you imagine that every time you walk out your front door, people just stare at you all the freaking time. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You'd be walking across. You could just be going out to the post boxes to get your post. That's all you do. And everyone's just looking at you like some some kind of car wreck that's happened. Right. And you know, now, you know, and Marilyn's a lovely person and stuff like this. Now, you know, tie this in with someone who's so incredibly ugly all the time. And, the, and, the, and at this time period, how people just shunned you and looked at you and yell at you and shout things out at you and you know step you know fear back at you because they don't want their child to be misborn misshapen when they're born because they you know they because you happen to glance over at them i mean that i mean that would form your personality anyway having that your whole life oh yeah when your best when your best friends are bells I mean, that pretty much tells you what kind of life you're leading. Well, right he, was, he was excluded from society because they kept him in the church to protect him from the outside world, too. So he didn't have that much social interaction anyway, except that it seemed to come to a head in, in the novel. I mean, well, it's kind of... But you also get these same kind of feeds in Stephen King's Carrie, don't you? Oh, the mother, God, yes. you know, because, because they carry you know, I don't, I'm not going to let you outside you stay home with me you stay home the home is safe outside the world is bad for you you need to stay home you need to stay safe and of course what what do you see when they do go out of society yeah. it all goes it all goes to hell doesn't it oh house. god man that was that, that I love that movie but god that is so true it's so reminiscent of how mean girls can be you know I know boys are no better sometimes but boy there's something about women in large groups, <laughs> they, they will single out some, I have seen it through high school and not so much in college, but I mean, you know, there, there's always somebody that just seems just outside the circle, you know? Yeah. Well, college, is, college is different because you actually get to pick who, who your you friends are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that, that's true. I did get to pick my friends in college. Yeah. School, school, school is, um, regular school is like your family. These are people you're kind of born into. <laughs> you have like no choice in the matter. <laughs> you just have to make a good thing better, don't you? You just have to hope for the best. Oh, God, yeah. But, but, but yeah, I mean, home is supposed to be your safe haven isn't it that's what home is we're all getting a good dose of that now are we not you know i'm I mean, actually not minding being out there <laughs> to tell you the truth i'm happy with my dogs and my books and my research stuff and well look at um there, there's a study going on about homeschooling it's, it's quite interesting, actually, is that the homeschooling, the kids end up coming outside, outside of homeschooling, quite intellectually bright, extremely mm-hmm. as far as an intellectual level. 
but there are some missing social constructs about how to get along <laughs> with people who do not fit within your own social capabilities. Asher it's was quite interesting. He wanted to go back so bad. You know, I talk I about my grandson a lot, but he was so happy to go back to school. I don't know about you, Shanta. Well, yeah, I sent my kids to, well, one of the kids is homeschooled. Uh, he wanted to do virtual, but yeah, I was homeschooled growing up. And I will definitely say that socially, I was a bit behind. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know that. Well, I think now. I think it's so outgoing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's because um, basically um, what school teaches you, which teaches you how to how do you have to maneuver yourself through lots of different personalities? Yeah. And how and how to find your place within these personalities? And I guess that when you go into a work setting or as you enter adulthood and then you have to find yourself you know trying to fit in into especially like office places because no matter where you were there's still that school mentality that goes on with these different personality types you kind of have to do your job be able to do your job well and be able to fit in within these different personalities to a simple fact that you know to do it well is very, very, it can be well, very, you still very run into people that are boorish and they still bully, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter how old we get. There are still that, there's still that mentality with some people and uh, yeah. you know, it, it's sad, but it's mm-hmm. true. I mean, I think that everyone has the capability to bully and everyone has the capability to be victim. And I think that most of us are normally in the spectrum in between that we kind of like weave, weave back and forth a little bit, you know, but then again, I guess it all depends on how you, what kind of bullying you're talking about. I mean, there are different types of bullying that we, you know, each of us do on an everyday basis sort of thing that we're not aware that we're doing it. Sort mm-hmm. of thing. Whether it's, you know, someone's telling you your problems and you're just looking bored. That's a form of bullying because <laughs> you're because you're basically dictating that your problems might be bad for you, but you're just not interesting, and that's a form of bullying. So you know. yeah, well, yeah, that's why I don't tell you my problems that much anymore, Keith. <laughs> well, you know, I do it for Olivia. I hear people's problems all day long. So, but um, I'd like to be a fly on the wall most of the time for that too. But another, but another thing that runs through the book real quickly is um, determination for some reason too. Um, it just seems like they're, they're, it seems like, I don't know if it, it's a fate thing that's going on. Um, but like, think of it as like Frollo watches the spider get caught in the web or the, the fly get caught in the spider's web. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the research also said that they don't believe that most no- characters in the novel believe in free will. Like, um, I can't, I'm going to assassinate this. Grignoire, is that how you say it? Grignoire, yeah. Yeah. He follows Esmeralda and he resigns his free will and accepts any direction she chooses. Like she's marrying him for four days or four years. So he won't die. And then you got Frollo believes that all actions might be predetermined and that um, he can, he can ensnare Lazmerelda. Uh, I can't speak today. Lazmerelda like a fly that gets caught in a spider's web and he thinks she's bound to fall into his trap. So he's using like examples of fatality and whatnot to justify all his horrendous actions, which you don't really expect out of this character because he kind of started out as a decent human being to the most extent. 
And, uh, and because of this, everything turns into some kind of fatalistic uh, actions that, that kind of predetermine how this is all going to come out. See, I did not expect, like I said, I thought I read this book. I had no idea that she got hung in, in actuality in the book, you know, because especially when you they're raised on Disney, cursed Disney. We always thought there was going to be, you know, the princess and the white knight. She's looking for a white knight in, in actuality. And she, she's looking for her savior throughout this whole book. And she sees this, you know, gorgeous man. And, you know, and he's, he's just really a piece of shit, basically. He's not a nice person. And, you well, know, I mean, he, he, makes her, he makes her get her tits out, doesn't he, at one point, just so you yeah. can have sex with her. By yeah, her- I mean, and she's, well, I guess what I consider jailbait now, I guess, wasn't back then but you know i mean he's not a nice person she's chased she's not she's not you know she's a virgin and because of her looks he's you know everybody thinks is resigned to think that she's you know promiscuous and she's just she just happens to be gifted with beautiful you know to be honest though the worst character in this book i thought was pierre gringor oh i thought he was i thought he was the worst i thought he was the worst character in the whole throwing her under the bus after she helped him you know, survive. And he had a weird obsession with her goat. Go ahead. He had a really weird obsession with her goat. Yeah. So bestiality, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I think he does too. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, is like, she saves his life. He could have been killed. She agrees to marry him for, for out of the goodness of her heart. There's no reason why she needs to. She doesn't have any association with this person whatsoever. She sees that, oh my God, he's going to be killed. So I'll agree to marry him for four years. Feeds him, yeah. him, really. I mean, she won't sleep with him because, you know, she'll sleep in another room with her, you know, with her best friend, the goat. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then when, you know, and then when she really needs him, to be honest, he could have come out at any point. When she gets, when they capture her and they're going to hang her for a witch, if he came forward and said, that's my wife, da, 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 and spoke for her, because, you know, at the end of the day, he's a playwright. Okay. He's, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's this, he wants to notice, he, he loves being noticed because he, you know, he thinks he's the most intelligent being in the face of this whole book or in the face of Paris. So at any point he could have came forward and like stopped that whole trial from happening to say, I married her, da, 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 could have done that. And um, turn, gets everyone all riled up to rescue her, but doesn't take part in the rescuing, sits there and goes off to the side and watches the mayhem happen. Right. Doesn't get bother to interfere knowing that she's going to be hanged at one point he could have saved her then could have got the rescue team to look and this is what's happening but turns her again gets frollo to you know you know tells frollo how to deliver her to yeah. her death then and you have the, the mother that, who find, figures out now that that they've been separated and that they have this, this little satin shoes now she's well she carried or esmeralda carried around that little you know wampum bag of mm-hmm. you know all the, mm-hmm. the the things she wanted, well, that she was looking for, she wanted to find her family, who she belonged to. She wanted her people. And then it's kind of, I found it weird. How do I say that woman's name? I cannot say her name. You're talking um, about her mom. Yeah. I always butcher the language, but. Uh, <laughs> Gringold? Yeah. 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 Gringold. Yeah. But I'm not very good with French, <laughs> but <laughs> she hates children, ironically. And she can't stand them. That's why I always thought that this this is one of the more tragic, you know, parts of the book because they just find each other, 
And, you know, she's already ripped away from her again. And in essence, her trying to keep her daughter, she gets killed by accident. So that's sad. But I mean, yeah. and I don't know. Doesn't, what she hate children? doesn't she hate children after the loss of her own child, though? Right. Well, so she hating what you, gypsy what, what's been lost to you. Thought they, they thought that she thought that the gypsies ate her, her, her child. Yeah. Well, they did kidnap the child. So she was. Well, they did. She was somewhat, somewhat. She was. She's around the base, just not on the base. <laughs> so she, she's around the bush, not exactly in the bush. So, right, yeah. right. But, I don't but, know. I, but the thing is, at least, I mean, the thing is, is, I can understand that if you think that someone stole your child and they gave your child harm, that you would be against this these people. I can yeah. understand that. Yeah. Um, I can understand Frollo to a certain extent that once the lust gets turned on, um, on inside his body for Esmeralda and then it sends like everything else shut off and that's pretty much you know you get that every single day when the you know when the little head's thinking for the big head you know you get that with guys quite frequently so I can kind of you know I kind of figure Nonsense that part out. goes out the window Quasimodo I can understand the the one act of kindness to sit there and um, turn his life around and how he will see Esmeralda I can understand all those people um the you know as far as the gypsies and how they lead their life and the code that they leave, leave their life on, I can understand all that. I oh, can't. Yeah. I can't understand Gringo, um, Pierre. I'm sorry, but he. I no. think for me, he was. He was. He's he those could kind have of done pe- something. Well, he's those kind of people that you know that they tell you what you want to hear, but as soon as your back's turned, the, the knife yeah. is there. He's one of those people. <laughs> I don't know? think he really thought about Esmeralda much. Like when she was in the. No- in the sanctuary and everything like i don't think he really like remembered her much he was just like living his life yeah yeah he was kind of complacent about a lot of things actually he just he, he it's all about him isn't it it's all about him his his yeah. getting his yeah. plays and whatever out there and his day in the sun i guess but but and- the, the one thing though i mean i don't know what you guys thought you know how quasimodo after they they hang esmeralda he he disappears mm-hmm. i mean where did he go and i mean and did he, he, he just decide to go and die and curl up around side her body i think yes. he did yeah or did somebody bury them together cuz clearly they were buried together no i think no he would- because he the way that his body was formed around her means that he died hugging her and their bodies fused yeah that is you, the tragic thing i've ever read i was like and, and, you, and, and, and which basically means that as her body is i mean I'm, I'm gonna get kind of medical here right you know, I, but basically what that means that basically is that their body compo- decomposed together right at the same rate what happens when two bodies decompose what happens is they can they can fuse together but what happened? That's, did he decide to go die right after she died? And did he seek out her? I say he died of a broken heart. He lost everything that was important to him. When he well, throws, that's his main. When he throws he? Frollo off the cathedral and he says, uh, "I've lost everything I ever loved." Yeah. And then he saw, you know, he saw her hanging in distance. He saw the the broken remains of Frollo on the ground. And I think basically what he did is he went to where she was buried, curled around her. And held on to the you know the only happiness that he thought that he was going to happen. I mean, let's be honest. If Les- Le Esmeralda lived, I don't think she would have actually looking twice to Quasimodo. If she ended up living a long life. I don't think there. I don't yeah. think there was a friendship or anything there. But I think that in Quasimodo's mind, that 
the only good that anyone's ever shown them outside of Frollo, who actually turned went from good to evil, was Esmeralda. And when Esmeralda dies from the for being a good person, what's the sense of living? Because she was kind of a martyr, as, wasn't as she? Getting. She was pretty much martyred, actually, don't you think? She just, she was, she'd rather, I mean, that had to really been a blow to Frollo's manhood. I would rather be hung than to spend any time in a living world with you. So, you know, mm. it, was, it was such a dark novel. It just was, it was sad. Well, I mean, to be honest, I, you kind of do wonder that if Frollo played his cards right and he didn't try to kill Phoebus and let's say that he met her without that in a different circumstances about him i mean her, her her first sight of frollo when coming out of the closet she's basically no topless frollo um phoebus is trying to get it on with her basically looking at her breast and the you know next you know in the fire you know the you know the fiery glimpse that's going on in the fireplace and pretty much getting you know getting ready to sow his oats with esmeralda and out out of the dark you know, covered comes this guy with a knife who starts plunging it into the Phoebus person who you think is the most beautiful man in the world, and then disappears, and you, you get saddled with this the crime of killing someone who's not Wasn't even. Wasn't he dressed dead. like a gremlin or something? I'm to... <laughs> yeah, the so, but, but I'm sitting there saying, so you know, you're not going to have a lot of love to this guy when you sit there and goes, "Oh, love me instead." Like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, right, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> Anytime that you do see Frollo, you always get this like pinched kind of look kind of guy to him sort of thing. It doesn't sound like he's well, look how Disney portrays him. Look how the movie wow. portrayed him, which you get into. But I mean, he's not portrayed as, you know, a real handsome, you know, desirable man. But then again, he's a priest. How many, yeah, but how many priests are good looking actually? You, you get the odd father, what a waste, but most uh, of them are. Yeah, that's <laughs> my father, what a waste. It was Father Remigio in seventh grade at Sacred Heart School, Waterdown, New York. Yeah, Father Remigio. I always went to see him in confession. <laughs> yeah. Hello. But most of, most of them no, are not very good looking. I, I, he the left cloth, the priesthood, by the way. The what? He left the priesthood. <laughs> As a lot of them showed up back in the day. Well, I mean, you never you never get sexy um, priest calendars coming out once a year, do you? No, they need to. <laughs> sexy priest calendars. There have been a few. <laughs> the, you know, just with the just with the collar, but yet with their like you know six pack showing. <laughs> that don't think go over too well, but. Yeah. Did you ever see the thorn birds? <laughs> yeah, that's Richard Chamberlain. Yeah. And he was gay. <laughs> I don't care if he's gay. He was good looking in that. <laughs> I think what we'll do is um what are your last thoughts of the hunchback of notre dame the novel starting with shanta i really enjoyed rereading it i love the atmosphere it's extremely atmospheric and it's very mm. visceral you feel it you see it you smell it <laughs> as mm. you're reading it so i really enjoyed the opportunity of rereading it and thank you guys for that i probably wouldn't have done it without you <laughs> <laughs> 
We're usually not this tame. This is a tame podcast. <laughs> but what about thought, subjects? Uh, dark, sad. Did not. I mean, I guess I watched too much Disney, but um, I, I really didn't expect the ending. Like I said, I thought I'd read this one, and I did not. I was getting it mixed up with another novel. I can't remember which one, but uh, I thought it was sad, and it just shows human nature. And it, whether it be a novel or a couple centuries, human nature hasn't changed that much, you know. And this, there's always going to be people like this, good or bad, that transpose into your life. You know, and I, I thought it was a brilliant. Not, I mean, if you're into geography with your and, and and architecture, you know, this guy's definitely got it all. Like I said, it so it was a hard follow, but I loved it. And for myself, um, interestingly enough, that the Disney version of the Hunchback and Everything went to the stage in Germany, mm-hmm. and they did a musical. They did the musical production of it, but what they did is they went back to the source material. So they actually went and did the. It's Actual. probably the closest adaption of this book than than, than it was quite surprising. So, so I kind of knew what happened at the ending because I did see um, a production of that. So I they stuck they went back to the original book. So I kind of knew that. But reading the book for me, um, it's one that caught me by surprise. It's one of those books that you know I thought, well, we should do Victor Hugo. I didn't want to do Les Miserables because I read that once and I don't think I could ever read that again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, oh, I actually read it twice. I read it in English, and I did read You're it in French. You're a glutton for punishment, then. After <laughs> well, I was really into. I'm a gay person liking musicals. What can I say? I fit into a stereotype. I'm sticking with it. But um, <laughs> but but saying that, so I thought, well, you know, when I was suggesting books, I thought, okay, let's do Hunchback and Fake. I thought, you know, it's a nice story. I thought, you know, it'd be a nice love story sort of thing. Yeah, right. Um. Then I realized how thick it was long after we discussed it. And I started reading it and going, you know, an account of Monte Cristo is as long as this book. Yeah. But this book, for me personally, kind of changed my life to a certain extent because I loved every single nuance of it, every single thing about the story, everything. And it's very rare that I get emotional reading a book. And I actually was felt very emotional by the end of this book and the way that, you know, his... The, the grave digger finds their bodies and now that that Quasimodo is that hit me time and I thought god this is so beautiful and you know and I'm gonna go back to Carrie again from from 14 you know you know when Carrie wins the prom you know and she goes up there and every time I see the Brian De Palma version of it I think oh no Carrie no okay not this time Don't and you do just it. that the blood doesn't fall on her because you just know that's and that's what I felt about Esmeralda's death you know and so like and so as the rope's going around her neck and then she's being hung and I'm thinking to myself like oh please don't please don't please don't please don't and it happens and there's nothing yeah. you you're just like this innocent bystander reading something that you're so emotionally in depth with mm-hmm. and I think Hunchback for me is going to be one of my favorite classic novels that we read so I liked far. it the only thing that pretty much touched on us so far what we covered was called The Wild and, I but I think that. Hunchback can actually be Call of the Wild for me. And Call of the Wild basically had me floored from beginning to end. And this book's actually floored me. And even with the history lesson in the middle of it, which I did struggle with. I, I liked to, it, though. I mean, but it was hard. After, after I finished reading it and reflected back on it, it all made perfect sense to me. It all it all comes together. I wish I would have read this book <clears throat> in retrospect before I went to France. Because I would have had a... Better, you know, how you've been somewhere. It's like, God, I wish I would have appreciated it more. 
Yeah. And it would have given me a, I mean, not that the architecture in Paris is not magnificent. It is. But I mean, I had no idea of the, you know, they're trying to modernize everything and they, they got rid of a lot of beautiful things and then refurbished it with other stuff, you know, but I mean. Well, the French Revolution, I mean, even though it gave the government back to the people, it actually ruined a lot of the landscape. (laughs) Well, I mean, when I saw the Palace of Versailles, I understand why they got their pitchforks out and stormed that the palace. I would have been pissed too. Golden Gates and so, yeah. I have always loved French history. I find that's why I really did like the history lesson. It was hard, but I liked it. So that brings us to The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 1939 film, which was brought out by RKO. It's an um, American romantic drama film starring Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara, and is directed by William Dattale and produced by Pandro S. Berman. The film was based on Victor Hugo's 1831 novel. Um, the film is also has a um, brief prologue, and it has been remastered. Um, it's also considered one of the greatest um, films made. And is considered a highlight and a hallmark in RKO's crowning jewels of films made in the 1930s. And also became slightly strange because it gave its nods to the universal classic horror movies that were going on at that time. So what we're going to do is cut to the trailer and we'll be right back with The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the film version. Love is only a part of my life. It's a very sweet part, I admit. For me, it's everything. All my life. I'm not a man. And I'm I'm not a beast. I'm as shapeless (laughs) as the man in the moon. Welcome back to Literature License Podcast. We're discussing the 1939 film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So, Shanta, what are your thoughts of this film? When I was watching through it, I was like, okay, this is like the novel. This is like the novel. Then I was like, well, that's different yeah. <laughs> by the end. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. I like the portrayal of the hunchback. I like that they kept that he was deaf, which is harder to show, I think, on screen and really have that come through well. 
Um, and I did enjoy watching it. I liked that they kept a lot of elements of the book, but the ending seemed very Americanized, for lack of a yes. better word. Good word. Good word. Definitely Americanized. Yeah, I have to agree with that, actually. I found the, um, I loved when it was real to the book, and I thought that they did some really good things. And I love little touches that they added, like um, when at the, the fool, the, um, the Parade of Fools, and you got, you got the guy there, and he's talking about Christopher Columbus saying that the world is round. Right. And, they go, and yeah. then you have that doctor, the world's flat. It's like that mumbling. There's like some really classic moments. But I found what I found quite weird is that out of the whole cast, you only had one good looking woman, and that's Marino O'Hara and everyone else. Oh my God. Where everyone else was so far on the other spectrum. Well, you had some of the, 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 was it the gentry? They they had their beautiful silk hats on and stuff. They weren't, you know, bad. Yeah, but I mean, that's what they're saying. I mean, there was one beautiful person in this movie, and that was Marino O'Hara. Everyone right. else failed. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I guess the um, Green Gold was quite a good looking guy. I, yeah. I suppose. And I had to say that I thought that his portrayal of him was different than what I had pictured in the book. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Frollo yeah, pretty much was what I pictured in the book sort of thing. I Charles Lawton, I mean, God I bless his soul. I mean, he made one of the, recovered one of his, he directed The Night of the Hunter, didn't he? Charles yeah. Lawton, which, I mean, he was a fantastic director. And I don't know too much about his acting, but I can see he acted it fantastic you know he really wanted this role i think he was coming down off of a, an oscar i can't remember what movie it was now he got an oscar but he really wanted this role because he he really thought that he was not an attractive man and he was also a gay man which i did not know and uh it, and he really he he really worked at this you know that he actually um had them wait the hump on his back, which was, they said it was painful, probably all of his prosthetics and his makeup because he wanted it as believable as possible. So when he's hunching over, he's carrying around a lot of weight because he wanted it to look that way. And I mean, he put a lot into this role and he, he kept trying to get them to the point. He was really unhappy with, you know, how the face was going. He wanted him to be uglier, uglier, make me uglier. That's why when I was laughing, when I turned on the Anthony Quinn version, it's like, I only got 10 minutes into that. I couldn't watch it because I was already <laughs> sold on Charles Lawton. But I mean, he did whatever he could to make the role believable and sustainable. And he did a good job with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, considering that he had one eye to act with. Right. He had that glass eye. They moved, you know, the prosthetics, which I found fast. It was actually quite good. And when you see him on the pillory, you know, I mean, I I always look because I'm really bad, you know, how things are really cool today, how they do it. But they actually did a good job, like when they took his shirt off and they were starting to, you know, they made it look pretty believable, his skin and his deformity. Mm. I yeah, I have to give give kudos to his performance. I mean, he really brought he gave I mean he gave Quasimodo a soul, really. And yeah. I, mean, that, I mean he had to be yeah. somewhat of a great actor to be able to do that. I mean, this it, you know, as we just stated, I mean to be having one eye shown and your mouth is pretty much got this denture fixture inside it so you can't even pronounce your words properly and even give a smile because of the way the makeup is in that time period doesn't give you a lot of room to do anything and then you have then they deformed your body so you can't act with your body normally and to be able to give a performance that he's given i mean i'm not sure how many actors could actually 
done that at all. With 30 to 40 pounds of weight on his back, he made sure that they had it on there. And he made sure that the makeup was so incredibly tight and fit. They said it was probably painful all day how, how he was, you know, having to do this. But he wanted to do it like that. He was just so into this role. because, And I didn't, the, the psychology behind it was just, neat when I started reading about it. Not, not, I didn't know Charles Lott was gay, not that it's a big issue, but I didn't know. Probably and would have back, been in 1939. But back then, you know, wow, you, you know, you can't, you couldn't really say much. I think everybody knew, but they didn't talk about it. And, you know, that he didn't think he was an attractive man. And that's why he jumped on the role. And then there's Maureen O'Hara, you know. I loved her in the movie, but she just didn't really seem like the dark Esmeralda, you know? She was a bit too Caucasian for the role, I would say. Very Caucasian. <laughs> Very Caucasian. Okay, you said it, I did. Well, considering, I mean, let's, I mean, let's take Maureen O'Hara. I mean, you know, I guess the thing I know Maureen O'Hara most famous for is the John Wayne film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and The Parent Trap, The Mother in the Parent Trap. Yeah. And, and Mia Farrow's mom. That's pretty much what she I think she for. played in, in Sinbad, too. She was the, the little... the. The female thief. I'm pretty sure that was her. No, that was Piper Laurie. But she's. I, I mean, that you know, that's. Let's look at Maureen O'Hara. Basically, just on looks. For instance, I mean, she's an Irish beauty, which Irish means pale white <laughs> with flaming red hair. Right. So basically, you know, to be part of a Romanian gypsy, even in black and white, I mean, it's like she's still she's white. Looked, well, yeah, she still looked Irish. You know what I mean? Right. But uh, but the story of Esmeralda not actually being uh, Egyptian or no. origin. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that. They would have been better off with someone probably. I mean, she wasn't around at this time, but probably Dorothy Lamar. Probably, uh, probably more of a Sophia Loren type. You know, yeah. I'm not saying Sophia Loren because Sophia Loren probably was ten years old at this right. point, maybe. But I was saying like that kind of Merle, that kind of smolder. They could have gone for an Italian actress who would have the right. same kind of yeah. even Merle Oberon. You know, somebody was a little more darker, but yeah, hell yeah, yeah. She was, or even Jane Russell. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, no, I couldn't have. No, <laughs> but no, I know no, that's that's a joke. But yeah, so. Though I think she acted it fantastically. I think there was a naivety, but she also seemed way too old for the role. I don't know what it is about these older films, but the women and men always seem older than what they are. I know. It just didn't seem right. I was looking... like watching Grease. Teenagers played by 30-year-olds. Yeah. It kind of felt like that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, when she did... You know how... Uh, he when he saves her the first time and he holds her up over the cathedral with all the people down there. Apparently, that was you know a really strong stand-in, and he was literally they had to do a down shot. He was holding her up, and she said she had to really get it out of her mind because she thought, okay, I'm going to die today. You know, let's just get it right the first time because it was uh, it was like a 200 foot drop, and wow. they had to stand and do that. I thought that was interesting. I have to say the set design, I mean, it's hard to believe it was all done in a soundstage. I know. It looked, it was really pretty amazing, amazing set for the 30s. It was beautiful. It was. It was. It really was. I found, I do have to say, I normally like Alfred E. Newman's, or not Alfred E. Newman, Alfred Newman's. Alfred E. Newman. (laughs) 
<laughs> Scott from Mad Magazine. <laughs> Alfred Newman's score. Because he did like Dark Victory and all these other classic films. And I had to sit there and say that I think his score was a bit jarring in this film. Sometimes the music was starting to kind of jarred out of this movie sort of thing. And I thought they could have done something maybe a bit more delicately French or something. I don't know. It's just kind of, it was just too Hollywood, especially like when they're singing and it's like, it just felt like, oh, here we go with the, the Hollywood. <laughs> I like Gregorian chant. I wanted Gregorian chant. That would have fit in better. Yeah. yeah. So, but I thought, I mean, I thought the guy you playing Frollo was brilliant as well. Yeah. I mean, he you know, seems younger than I thought. Like, uh, Esmeralda didn't seem 16. Quasimodo didn't seem 20. And Frollo yeah. was a little bit younger than I expected. Well, it's quite funny with the guy who played the Cedric Hardwick. Yeah. Because lately, um, Vicky and I have had some kind of relationship with Cedric Hardwick later this year. Cause he saw, cause we basically covered a film that he did, um, which is based that they basically witched off of. Right. He's in that. And then of course we just saw him in Bewitched playing Santa Claus, didn't we? Right. <laughs> the, the Bewitched film. <laughs> so he's just like, we've get, and we and he's, he's popped up in a lot of things that we've covered so far. So it's like almost it's like like it's like oh my god, Cedric Aldrich. So it's like becoming a name for us. <laughs> Before that I didn't even know who he was. It's like, oh my god, oh this is Cedric Hardwick. What? But you know his face when you see it if you like silver screen movies and whatnot and some of the sitcoms. Yeah. It does pop into a lot. And the one thing I did notice a lot, I'm sure um, Shanta, you notice too, is that the king is not represented at all like he is in the book. He's a very hateful, shrewish man in the book, and this guy is all for like civil rights in the movie. You know, yeah, he's a lot more benevolent. Yeah, and he wasn't so in the book. So I was, he was not a nice guy. And a lot of those kings weren't nice guys back in the day. You know, I mean. But- they represented him as a real nice guy, you know, and it was practically this other guy was making Thomas Paine pamphlets, you know, and it's probably much inciting the peasants to come drag him out of the palace, basically. Yeah, I felt well, like the movie had was pushing a lot more of that message that was more relevant to the time it was made than appeared in the book. So they were really pushing that message, like the more progressive message. Yeah, I guess, I mean, this is between what, World War One and World War Two that this is coming out. And World, and Germany is just starting off in about 1937, 38, wasn't it? So I guess that was right up there. So I guess that's probably what they are. Yeah, just pre-war, pre-World War Two. Was this done in I Hollywood? Mean, this was Hollywood, correct? This wasn't in English. Because yeah. Maureen O'Hara yeah, was imported over from uh, the UK, I believe, to do this. Who, somebody, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> just lost his name played quasimodo oh my god charles requested her because they had done a movie prior to this together and he really liked her you know and he liked working with her so he requested her that's how she got into it so she didn't have to do too much to get this role well it's i mean i really liked the movie up to I love the first two thirds and then we get right. to the final third. And this is, and then when we get like green gold, like doing pamphlets to save Esmeralda now Esmeralda being pardoned and, you know, and then we get like, you know, and then she gets freed and then, and then we're kind of led to believe that she's going to run off with someone, maybe Phoebus or something. It's not, she doesn't, but you kind of get that idea that this is what's going to be her future sort of thing. She's going to, you know, and she it, ended up with Greenwood, I think, in the movie. Yes. Yeah, she yeah. did. 
the you know the guy who betrayed her all the way through and right. <laughs> her and uh, she I, ended I, up with him. It's like, oh, you were right in front of me the whole time, you know, and and yeah, it's a happier ending, but but you know when you get Quasimodo standing, you know. He's on high on the cathedral, looking down, and sadly says to the gargoyle, "Why was I not made of stone like thee?" And then the movie ends. You're like, "Oh, okay. yeah, that was lame." I have to admit, after reading the book, I mean, I don't even think. Do you two know if there's any? Is there a movie out there that stays true to the story? I, I think they all change the ending. I think. I think that they always make sure that Esmeralda travels off into the sunset from every version that I've seen. All my understandings. Um, Quasimodo always, you know, always ends up on top of the top of the cathedral alone. So, and that's just, that's just kind of sad about these movie Hollywood endings. But I see for like the Quasimodo character because there's no arc for him. He saves right. Esmeralda. To what extent does he save her? Why? Right. He says it's only to be left alone in a cathedral, looking down on the human race, because he never becomes part of the human race. They don't. It's not like he comes down and they, you saved Esmeralda, so welcome to you know, welcome to the fort. You're part of the group now. Let's all join the hands and sing Kumbaya for the rest of our lives, because we're going to overlook your disfigurement. No, he stays disfigured, alone, talking to freaking gargoyles. Yeah. Like realistically, how would they end it? Like. If you were going to make a happy ending for him, she's not going to end up with him no matter what. No, you know. No, but, so, but you can, but you can make him part of society, maybe. Oh, sorry. Well, I don't think he'd ever be accepted either way, and he's only cares about her. He doesn't care about the rest of the people. So, what is he going to do? Like, end up being like her servant when she's married to Phoebus someday or something? You know, like there's no good ending for him there. Yeah, that, that's the sad thing about. At least in the book, it's like this, you know, her ending's depressing and his ending's depressing, but there's something beautiful about that how their bodies are found. There's a beauty there. It's not, I mean, it's not happy. I mean, God forbid, I don't want to be hanged. And, you know, and I'm never, I'm never going to sit there and wrap my body around a dead body so I can die next to it. I mean, that's never, I mean, that's never going to happen to me because I'm, I'm too selfish for that. You're but, not that self-sacrificing. <laughs> I'm too, sure. for, too self-centered for that. But, um, <laughs> It's shallow. Don't forget shallow. But I just think that if you, if you want to, if you're going to do a Hollywood ending, so you're going to get Esmeralda flying. So maybe, you know, you're never going to put the Quasimodo and her together. That's never going to work. But um, because of Quasimodo fighting to keep Esmeralda alive, then I guess you could sit there and go where the people like go, oh, we've looked past your ugliness and we've seen into your soul and then make them part of the community. I'm saying it's a, it's a push if you're going to go for a happy ending. But every ending that you see of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, doesn't matter what version you're seeing, is that Esmeralda, 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 well, Esmeralda gets a happy ending and Quasimodo gets the depressing ending. I'm yeah. Yeah, no, and Disney version is depressing, this is depressing. The original silent film, which I watched, is a depressing ending for Quasimodo. And so it's, so you're like, so what's the point of calling it the Hunchback of Notre Dame? Because no one ever sees inside his soul. Ever. Not really. Right. And even in the, the movie, I mean, he's just, he, he's, I don't know, he seems sort of like a hippie, you know, he's just swinging from the bells and it's not really going to invoke any kind of romantic inclination for Maureen O'Hara either, you know, but. 
Well, he begin he begins in, in all the film versions of it. He be he ends the story the way that he begins it, with no change in his personality, at all. Right. And if they were going right. to make it today, they would have like some giant surgery that would turn him into the hero or something like <laughs> <laughs> something, anything. There's plastic surgery now. That's right. It can be done, into, I guess. Turn him into Antonio Banderas. <laughs> <Yeah. Ew. laughs> Right, it was was believable up until that point. I have to give you, yeah, creds for that one. I thought it was kind of, I, I, it was, it kind of got, it wasn't like a civil rights movement, but it got kind of weird, you know, with the pamphlets and then, but the, but the one thing remained throughout the book and the movie and the other movies that I'd I'd seen, you know, people do come in to try to save her, and Quasimodo kills all the the well doers, you know. melts yeah. and or whatnot or he's throwing rocks off the top of the building and so there's literally nobody to protect her after he decimates these people so i mean they did do that you know and i didn't yeah, so- know that did you shot i was like going is he killing the good people I mean, <laughs> yeah it was based on a misunderstanding because he sees people trying to storm the cathedral and he doesn't understand his only experience with the town people and stuff is has been bad Right. And his experience with like religious figures like Frollo was good up to that point. So right. he has more trust in the officials than he does in a mob. So he sees a mob descending on him. He mistakenly thinks they're coming to hang her. Yeah. And in essence, well, I don't think of any, I don't think of any circumstances where a mob is good anyway. Is it? No. In, in, <laughs> I'm sorry, but um, we had riots here um, back when I first arrived in London for the poll tax riots. And I was coming out of a movie theater. I'm quite oblivious what goes on in this, uh, where everywhere around me, I'm quite just wrapped up inside my own head most of the time. But I remember coming out of the movie theater, watching Steel Magnolias come out and it's like, and there's this riot going on. And I was like, okay. And basically it's like, you know, I just went around the back and got on the tube home. So I, I didn't realize the devastation until I got home and saw the news. Right. And I thought to myself, like, it's like, if you just got some kind of mob or riot going on around you, it's like, I don't even know what side you would even, what side I would even go on. It's just like, you know, if it, especially if one's coming towards you, it doesn't matter if they're like fighting for human rights or fighting for whatever, you know, you know. If it's coming towards me, it's like I'm either booting out of there. If I'm locked against her, I might have to fight back. I don't care what you're fighting for. I just Oh, yeah. I mean, I it's mean, called self-preservation. It doesn't matter which side you're on at that point. Yeah. Especially if you got... Go ahead. Home is the cathedral, so he doesn't want any damage to happen to it or his bells or, you know, right. the idea of the sanctuary that he has. Yeah, what was the name of his the bell, his favorite bell? Do you remember that? Was it Mary or something? Mary? I can't remember, I can't remember actually. I don't she remember. The one that made him deaf. <laughs> I love you. You make me deaf. <laughs> <laughs> well. I love if she paid my rent. <laughs> but yeah, it's a... Um, I mean, it is a, quite a sad existence for Quasi. Isn't it? That's what, I guess that's what... I guess that's kind of what bothers me about about the film versions, because at the end of the day, it's like you do want to see if you're going to if your main character is me, Quasimodo or whatever character. And even if it's, you know, Quasimodo is pretty much painted like one of those universe classic horror monsters. He's like Frankenstein, you know, where, Mm -hmm. you know, 
he actually drowns the girl, but his heart is still fishy. You know what I mean? It's like even the kinds of kind of goodness of heart even goes, or The Wolfman, or Dracula, or all those horror films that were coming out of the, out of Universal. And this kind of that's what I found quite bizarre about this film is that it kind of fits into those films that you can actually just put this in. That let's do a Universal classic horror movie night, and we can slide Hunchback and Notre Dame, and you would watch it and think, "What? It's a good movie, and it kind of fits into this criteria." And that's what, kind of, that's what kind of fit kind of strange for me for Hunchback, though, as, as a story, because, yeah, Quasi is just... There's no hope for this person. This individual is going to lead a very reclusive, lonely life. That's the sad part. Talking to gargoyles or talking to himself. Yeah. And it's it any different now. Well, you just know, like in five years' time, that he's that it won't be long until his gargoyles will be talking back to him inside his head. Which basically, he's just go mad, isn't he? <laughs> it's like, How are you today? Oh, you're fine. Or, or he starts talking to himself in the third person. <laughs> so Quasimodo is going to go ring the bell today. Quasimodo is not having his lunch. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, and I I don't know. I just think that I think that. If I think that if you're going to do a film version and you, and you need to tack on the happy ending, because God forbid, if people don't see a happy ending at the end of the movie, they're going to kill themselves or start swinging from the, you know, swinging from the, from their necks, like Esmeralda does in the book. So if you're going to do a happy ending, I think that if you're going to do it successfully, I think that you're going to have to find some kind of middle ground. So Quasimodo grows as a person and, even if he comes out of the church and he helps save Esmeralda's life at the final hurdle or something like that, and then everyone does a Hollywood high school ending where they all end up. Uh, that's what I thought was going through my head, that movie, the Hollywood ending song. Because, it, you know, that kind of puts things in perspective when you start watching Hollywood and you hear the soundtrack to that movie. And it's just like, God, because, you know, not everybody is going to get a Hollywood ending. There was in this a Hollywood ending for Maureen O'Hara, you know, and uh, and that, that I think he was kind of a sleaze, actually. Walter, not a Walter Hamden. It was Thomas. No, it was Edward O'Brien, and he was he was kind of a shit through this movie, anyway, wasn't he? Yeah. And she all of a sudden, after okay, well, I can't get Phoebus, so I'm just going to settle for you. You would have thought that he <laughs> wouldn't be happy with that anyway. It's like okay, well, I'll get seconds, you know. Yeah, basically she basically she settled for the failed playwright right. <laughs> <It's> like, okay <laughs> she'd be barefoot and pregnant and i'm scrounging for a loaf of bread the <laughs> next year too <laughs> yeah well yeah, yeah there was a caste system you know i mean let's face it yeah she didn't marry outside her class did she she actually went more she went she went something outside the class system that's marrying into the arts at that time <laughs> that's just like it's like you're an actor. You're actually not part of any classes. So you're actually part of nobody. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. But saying that, I thought you know, not to, you know, not to go too far into the Disney musical version of it, but I thought it was quite interesting that that basically the Disney musical is a, a remake of not of Hunchback of Notre Dame, the novel, but Hunch, you know, the 1939 film. Because even the way the characters are drawn and the way Quasimodo is drawn, it. It's basically all based on this film, wasn't it? Even him talking to gargoyles. Yeah. Which is, which is quite interesting in its own right. So, but. I love the, the gargoyles. 
Oh, that reminds me of the gargoyles in Disney. That's, the, that's just yeah. Even, that's what we're just saying. That the, 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 the Disney version is a Disney version of this movie, right? The way that all the way all the way the characters look. Every you know you know. We're just, but if you look at all the characters and the way and the whole thing is basically a musicalized version of this 1939 film. Yeah, but I mean, in, in in essence, though, the Esmeralda for the Disney character is what I was looking for. Maybe not so perfect, you know, because you know how Disney makes every you're just perfect. You're either an Adonis or you're just Aphrodite. So, but I mean, I was expect I would I would really like to really see ha- the portrayal a little more realistic with the dark hair and the darker olive colored skin, you know. Yeah, yeah, to make it more realistic. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, I mean, she was whiter than the queen, wasn't she? So. Oh, my God, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But, I mean, at least, cat. I mean, I guess back then, it, Hollywood was white. I mean, it was so white. And that's what you got. <laughs> Let's face it. Well, normally, but normally they would darken you down, though. They always darken you Yeah, but you it didn't look very time. natural, you know? Well, no, but, I mean... It, but I mean, even I think I think every actress at one point in the career during this time period was darkened down at some point, sort of thing. Yeah, well, Charles Car- Lawton wanted her though. He requested her specifically, yeah. but I still think Dorothy Lamore, You know, it could have been worse. They could have got Carmen Miranda to do it. Oh my God! Don't get <laughs> on I love Carmen Miranda. <laughs> Dancing with a fruit bowl on her head. Hey, <laughs> Esmeralda! <laughs> Make me a salad. <laughs> I'm a chica and I'm not, and I'm here to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is what I deal with every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna remake the Hunchback and Notre Dame with my own cast. So. <laughs> there you have it. So what we'll do now is let's compare the book, the screen, and tell us what you like better and why and why you like and what you like the worst. And I'm going to start with you, Vicki. You you're do always it. good at these. I like to the hear best, your ideas the best so, I, so I can plagiarize more effectively. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay, book, love the book. Like I said, I struggled through a little bit of it. That's why I was like texting you guys. I go, man, no one makes cliff notes anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it was a great book. It, when I think about it in retrospect, like I said, I wish I'd read this book before I actually went to France. It would have been, I would have given me more appreciation. I say that every time. I was just, my friend was very kind and brought me all over the world, literally. And, um, and you know, I, I could have appreciated it so much more had I had this insight into the architecture stuff. I knew about the architecture. I just had no idea that he'd written this book as trying to like, you know, the save the whales kind of campaign, you know, and the book is great. It's dark. You know, I was really, I was, it was so, the ending was quite sad. I have to say, when you start reading these old books through, well, you know, we hated them when we were kids reading. We always say that when you read these books with an older pair of eyes, finally you get a new appreciation of them and a message because they all have a message. And it, it was, it was a great book. And the ending was extremely sad. That's all I'm going to say, especially how he curled around her body and they just, you know, fused for eternity because the, he loved her so much. But, but I, like I said, I love I loved the movie, but, you know, you kind of hit it on the head when you said it, I loved it up to a point. 
and then the flyers came out, you know, and then the, you know, it was kind of got zany when it really should have been maybe a little more reverent is the word I want to use because the book was really reverent. It really was. And I, I guess, you know, well, Hollywood in the thirties, it was white, really white. You know, I'm not even trying to be a jerk here. It's just the way it was. And Charles, I just, I, I love Maureen O'Hara. I love her in all the John Wayne movies. I love her in a lot of movies she's made, but you know, I, I think that, Back then, they weren't looking for a particular typecast. You know, they were just, it was it was to make money. And who who's making the money right now? Who's going to bring in the bucks? You know, who do people want to look at? And I know they still do that today, but I think there's just a little more effort into making somebody look more appealing as the actual character, do I want to say? You know, like get a good example. Um, who's somebody that they typecast perfectly in the movie? Kara Knightley. Kara Knightley act and they keep telling it and they keep putting her in English dramas and they keep making the think that she's a good actress. I like her in some of her movies. Don't pick on Kara. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pick on her. But no, I mean, I really, I, I love my old movies. You know, I do. But uh, I, I really wish that they would have kind of deterred a little bit from all the comedy towards the end. And I would like to see an actual movie that sits with the book, an actual yeah. kind of stick with the book. It yeah. does mean. I just missed when the the mob was going out there. You kind of expected the, the score from Beauty and the Beast to come in. Kill the beast, kill the beast. Da, 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 da. Right. <laughs> kind of, kind of well, have that feel to that, it. That wacky music they do. The music is isn't really. Yeah, it doesn't sit well, does it? So no, that's me. It's a bit jarring. What about yourself, Shanta? I really loved the movie. Um, yeah, up to a point. I think it got really heavy handed with the message it was trying to do. And it got to the point where they were more focused on the message than the story. And yeah. the, you know, they were really focused on this idea of, you know, that you're doing things the old violent way and there's a new way of doing things and you can affect better change with words. And it just got so heavy handed with that. And then the, they kind of tacked on a Hollywood ending to it. So yeah, it ended up being less effective for sure than the book. I really enjoyed seeing the sets. It was beautiful. The cathedral was amazing. Um, And I, I actually liked the aspects of all the misunderstandings that were going on because of lack of communication. um, Because I think that's an important message, but I didn't, the execution fell flat from the book a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I think I wasn't expecting it, but I think this book is like a time, uh, a, a real changer for me. And it's now it's going to be really hard for me because I fell in love with the book. I love the beauty of it all. I love the nuances. I loved everything about the book. And it's a book that caught me totally by surprise because I thought that it was going to be a huge struggle for me because Count of Monte Cristo, I, you know, we did it the beginning of the season and I I loved reading the book but it was a struggle it felt like I was reading it for weeks on end this one because we were reading it for weeks on end <laughs> but but this, but this book this book's the same length um as that and I finished this book within a week and a half and I just and I, I look forward to like opening it and reading it and getting so involved with it and it really stuck me and then when I read the final you know final paragraph of it and it was finished it 
it really, it, it really scarred my soul to the fact that it's always going to live inside me. And it's very rare that books do that. I know that 20 years from now, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to think of this book and it's still going to, it's going to evoke all these kinds of emotions within me for, and it's, you know, that's why I said this book kind of like changed, changed a lot for me as far as, you know, you know, than other, other books, because if I read a lot of books, I write a lot of book reviews. I read about two or three books a week and I have to do book reviews and get those out to the publishers and everything like that as part of what we do here. And it's very rare that something sticks inside me and this book actually sticks inside me and um and the ending of it and beauty of it and even think of it now i feel kind of emotional about esmeralda i feel emotional about the ending and now those emotions child are just are just bubbling up inside me at the moment when i'm talking about it so that for me this is one of these fantastic works of history that deserves to keep living and keep living exactly as far as the movie you know i i I love the disney version of it because the disney version as far as the music and everything that went into the animation feature with the tacked on endings and stuff like this was monumental in the way that we could look at the animation and they'd taken their musical format and turned it into this great big gothic you know, operatic stances. And I appreciate that for it. Um, but now, and then the 1939 movie, I've seen it before. It fits fantastically well with the universal classic movies. I used to love it for that. But unfortunately, the book has now ruined both for me, has ruined both film versions for me. And I now yeah. when I see them, the what I used to enjoy with each of those films, different incant- incantations in the 1939 film, I used, I love the way it's filmed. I love the acting. I love the way it looks. I love the way it goes. But now reading the book, I'm very disappointed. And it's, it's weird because... It's very, you know, I can normally separate the two, but because of the loss of Esmeralda's storyline and what happens to her at the end and the loss of Quasimodo and what it meant to be Quasimodo and the change and the sacrifices that he makes, the simple fact that he has to kill who he loves because of something that he loves has been died and then feels so alone that he basically commits suicide because there's no place for him. Or a night of a broken heart, like you said. I was yeah, and there's some, there's a beauty to that, and it, sure. and because of that beauty ending for it, it, to me that is a happy ending because you read that and you think that and you think to yourself and and it, the book makes you look in look in on yourself. It's like you know, for me when I you know read the book, I looked at myself and I was like, if I saw Quasimodo, I probably would have been in the mob. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I am so super it's not even funny but saying that after reading that you you tend to look at things slightly differently you do look at humans slightly differently and you have an understanding for them and that's what the, the book gave me it gives you an understanding of humans and that even though books set in the, you know 1485 and then the book was written in 1840 1840s and here we are 2021 now mm-hmm. and it's i guess what's you know, the book points home is that the human race hasn't really changed at all, has it? That's what I was saying. The human race has not changed. You're always going to encounter those particular mentalities. It doesn't matter if you're in the 21st century or the 33rd century. Human nature is never going to change. And I mean, what did we saw there in 2020? Mob mob mentality is very, very much alive, but it now lives on social media. You're either with us or you're against us. Exactly. And and that's why I think, for me, I think the Hunchback of Notre Dame is it's relevant today as it was when it was written. I agree. I think it'll be relevant from years to come. So they're my final thoughts. It was a good read, kids.
So that brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast. And just to remind you that next week we'll be doing Bewitched. And our two for one, which is Nature versus Man episode, will be 28 days later and 28 months later, which will work very, very well considering I am living on Plague Island at the moment. So we can't <laughs> go anywhere anyway. So yay. So, but, and then of course we'll finish off with Dark Shadows. And our next classic novel is H.G. Wells' Time Machine which will be joined by our, our special guest, which will be um, available later on once they confirm, and we'll be discussing that. But for now, it's goodbye from ourselves. And just to remember that you can always like, share, or comment on our um, pages. Or if you're not a member or a subscriber, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at www.llpodcast.com, and you can get a free audiobook of and in the apocalypse, which is going to be available for the next two months. And if you're a member of our newsletter, you will get the um, special code for that. So you can download that book for free. Just make sure you write a review because when you write a review, you help keep people's lives appropriate and they're able to do the things they love. Because if you write a review, it means they get more notice, which means that more people will read them, which will help continue on with their profession and make sure that you like, love, and share. So it's good night for myself and good night, Vicki. Good night, everybody. Have a great new year for what it's worth. <laughs> Good night, Shanta. And thank you for joining us today. Good night. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you, Shanta. And just remember, it's our diversity that makes us a happy and loving um, community. Share and love, love one another. And anyone that's different from you, understand them. You don't have to agree with them, but it doesn't hurt to accept their acceptors. No. Mm-hmm.